Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Karen Swallow Pryor is an English professor and the author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. It won Publisher Weekly's Best Book of 2018 in the category of Religion. Justin Taylor said that few teachers are this clear, compelling, and Christ-centered. When you hear this conversation, you'll know what he means. Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you so much for being on the Habit podcast with me today. Thanks for having me. Here's where I want to start our conversation, and we'll just kind of go from there. You are on kind of a one-woman campaign to to elevate the reading habits of um, especially American Christians, it seems. Um, and and I, I was thinking about the advice that writers often get, especially people who are giving advice to young writers, encourage them to read more, you know, that, that, that writers are readers, that kind of thing. As I have thought about that advice, to me it feels a little bit like giving a teenage boy the advice to make sure you eat three meals a day and have some snacks in between. You know, the <laughs> writers writers seem like, you know, I, I kind of work from the assumption that writers are already readers. And from my problem tends to be to stop reading and start writing, to stop being a producer. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, stop being a consumer and flip the switch and become a, a producer. So... For for what are your thoughts on what writers should be reading? How they should be? Or, or do writers need to be reading differently from other other people? Yeah, I have thoughts. I have so many thoughts. So, um, I th- you know I think in a way there are two kinds of writers. Um, there are true and good writers like you just described yourself who who love language and love the craft of language. And that means you, you are a reader because that's, you know, it, it's like being a painter and you, you don't just paint, you look at the masters mm-hmm. um, and take inspiration from them. But then there is a whole other um, brand of writers. I think they've always been around since we've had, you know, the printing press, but social media has certainly expanded their numbers. And those are people who want to be published authors. Mm-hmm. whatever that means. Yeah. Um, and they just, you know, they, they want to, they want to spill their thoughts out onto the page because they think everyone should see them just like the selfies on Instagram. Um, but they don't necessarily love the craft of language. They don't, you know, even haven't even studied it. I mean, I guess we have, I think any, any discipline or field would probably find those you know, kind of people in it who, you know, the, the person who wants to be an NBA star but doesn't want to practice dribbling or something. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So I just, I think that, you know, so I think, and then I think there's maybe a group in the middle that doesn't quite see the connection, then maybe the potential lovers and crafters of language and words who have to understand the connection. So maybe there are sort of three different groups. And, um, and yeah, I, so I, th- I think it is something that we do have to talk about the importance of reading to the writer. How do uh, writers need to be reading? That's kind of a broad well, I question. Think, isn't it? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I in my in my first book, book to literature in the soul of me, um, in the first chapter, I talk about um, being a young 
PhD student and having a professor introduce me to John Milton's work, Areopagitica, which Uh is basically an argument for, you know, his own Puritan conservative Christian people to read widely, or he uses the 17th century word, which is promiscuously. (laughs) Um, So, which is, you know, literal, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to have the sexual connotation. Um, Although that, you know, that works too. But, um, so read widely. Um, We all have the things that we prefer to read, myself included, but we need to stretch ourselves. And I, what we read really does shape our understanding and use of language. I mean, I read a lot of 18th century British literature because that's my specialty. Mm-hmm. And so you will see the convolution in my sentences. I'm not saying that's a good thing, right. but I love, I love my complicated clauses and my M dashes and so forth. Now I try to discipline myself and offset them with short sentences. But I mean, 18th century British language is just seeped you know, into my soul and into my writing because I read so much of it. Right. Um, just on Twitter the other day, I used the word knave, K-N-A-V-E, <laughs> and I got lots of applause for it. And I'm like, oh, for bringing that word back. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was gone because it's yeah, such a great funny. 18th century word. <laughs> um, so we do need to be intentional in what we read and read widely and understand that what we're reading will affect the way that we think and the way we use language. Mm-hmm. What, do you, uh, what do you do to counteract your uh, 18th century tendencies in sentence hmm. structure? <laughs> well, you know, I have, I, I've read some, uh, some great style books. Um, you know, the, the, that's not always the most fun reading, although it can be if you get yeah, right. some of them are well written. Um, and, and I have over time, I, you know, this is something a lot of writers will talk about. And so this isn't anything new, but I'll, I'll admit that it's kind of a struggle for me. Um, I'm, you know, the reason I'm Baptist is because I have no rhythm. I can't even clap in time. <laughs> so, no, that's not really true. The trolls out there, there are other reasons too, but why well, I'm Baptist. But um, I, I'm someone who doesn't, you know, rhythm doesn't come naturally to me. And so this idea of, you know, hear, you know, developing a writing voice and hearing with your ear the rhythms of your writing and your style, um, that's something I've, ha- you know, I've had to work very hard to develop through lots of lots of writing and lots of paying attention to that. And so for others, that might come more easily, but I've really tried to develop my ear for writing uh, and paying attention to the rhythms of my prose so that it, you know, it has a good rhythm. And even though I can't clap in time. Do you uh, <laughs> read your, your sentences out loud a lot? I don't anymore. I think I did very early on, and it is something that I encourage people to do. But I, I hear my own voice so much in my head that I, you know, I don't have to literally do it out loud. Um, but again, that that ability also has come with lots of practice and intentionality. Yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Um, yeah, I, I, your 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 idea of a voice emerging, I think it's especially interesting for. For people who have, like you, who who have uh, done a lot of writing in the academic realm, mm-hmm. um, the where where you're rewarded for speaking in a voice that doesn't sound like your actual voice. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, what has that been like to to bridge from academic writing over into um, a, a more more popular 
writing. Have have you run into yeah. issues there? Um, that's a good question. Um, I I will another um, confession. I remember being so devastated. I, one of my um, first or second semesters, I think, in my PhD program, and I got a paperback from my professor, and she wrote on it that my writing was very inelegant. Huh. And I thought, I, I, you know, I was one of those kids who always got A's in English in high school and always got A's in college and, you know, undergrad and then went into a PhD program, you know, and was totally yeah. blown away. And I thought nobody had ever, t- no one ever told me my writing should be elegant. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I was devastated. I'm still, it still hurts <laughs> to say it now all these years later, but, um, but that was a turning point for me. Um, and so I look back at my dissertation now, which is, you know, 20 years old and I'm, and I think, well, you know, it's, it's not very elegant, but it's, it's better. Um, and then, um, I think that, that line between my academic writing and my public writing, uh, or that gap has narrowed. And that's Uh a good thing because there is a, there is a movement within academic writing to, you know, I mean, there's so much bad academic writing, and right. it doesn't need to be bad. It can be technical, and it can be deep, and it can be philosophical, but it does not have to be bad writing. Um, and there's a great book by Helen Sword called um, uh, "Stylish Academic Stylish Academic Writing," I think is what it's called. Oh, I don't um, know that book. It, I'd love to see that. It's it's fantastic, and I'm totally team Helen Sword. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I know. I have a PhD in 17th century uh, literature, and I felt like I had to— I did not know that. I do, yeah. How did— Milton. I, well, yeah. well, wow, I should—go well, ahead. You take yeah. over the show. Well, I, 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 bow, just I say, bow at your feet. <laughs> I, I felt like I had to unlearn. When I decided I wanted to be um, you know, the other kind of writer besides an academic writer, I felt like I spent a lot of time unlearning some habits. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I, mean, I don't know that I, maybe I shouldn't say I spent a lot of time. I just read Flannery O'Connor and kind of got you know came back to <laughs> gospel sanity. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it was almost like I spent the first many years of my um, intellectual life trying to leave Middle Georgia and learn how to you know mm-hmm. talk Milton, and then and then Flannery O'Connor brought me back to Middle Georgia. Oh, she brought you, she brought you home. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, um, I want to, I want to, so, well, if I, can I, can I just, can we geek out for a few minutes here? I hope the audience doesn't mind. That's interesting because 17th century poetry and prose is much, I I talked about 18th century being convoluted, but actually in comparison, it's much, you know, it's, especially the neoclassical, the the really properly neoclassical writers of the 18th century really did aim for clarity and simplicity and balance and symmetry very, very much in contrast to someone like Milton. So um, maybe, maybe those 18th century writers didn't do me as wrong as, you know, I was kind of joking (laughs) earlier about. So, (laughs) yeah, you know, one thing that is, that has changed in my way of thinking about, um, Reading and writing since, you know, since I was uh, reading for a for a PhD in seventeenth century literature, is that I was so impressed with those um, with those poets. You know, John Donne. He, he is so impressive, and I 
I'm still impressed by John Donne and and those poets of that era um, and their wit. But mm-hmm. I don't. Lo- but but I realize that that being impressed and loving aren't quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and so when I read John Donne, I think, boy, isn't John Donne a clever guy? And but John Donne doesn't. He doesn't change the way I think about the things he writes about the, the way other other writers might. And so I'm still as impressed as I ever was with John Donne, and I think he's just a, a genius. But I keep thinking about John Donne when I read John Donne instead, mm-hmm. of, instead of the things John Donne is talking about. Now, his sermons really do move me quite a bit. And, um, and, and a lot of his um, – I should also say that, that his um, – the sonnets, the, the holy sonnets – um, I'm going to make an exception mm-hmm. for, for those, but but his metaphysical, you know, those sort of love poems, um, you know, I'm so impressed with that that poem, the flea. But it has has not changed the way <laughs> I think about the flea. It's, it hasn't changed the way I think about fleas, and it hasn't changed the way I, I think about sex. You know, um, it's just impressive. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, in academic writing, is it, whatever else you're saying in academic writing, the one thing you're always saying is. Be impressed with me. Give me tenure. <laughs> move me on to the next level of my career. Um, and I, th- I think that's one of the, the dangerous things. The fact that we all learn writing in an academic setting. Um, well, what we the way we learn to write is always in terms of what is this going to do for me? And I felt mm-hmm. like that was... That was something I had to unlearn when I wasn't in academic anymore. And it, by the way, Karen, I know you're an academic. It sounds like I'm picking on all academics, but oh no, no, no! This is a very this is a, these are real problems. But mm-hmm. but every but but academic writing, almost I mean not, not almost by design, is um, I mean ideally you can you can sort of marry. I'm passionate about this subject and I want people to know about it, and also I want to advance myself in some way, either to the next grade if I'm mm-hmm. a student or to the next level of my career if I'm a, if I am a professor, um, and that's a best case scenario. But but you know, in in many scenarios, the self promotion is a more important is the more important of those of those factors. When I teach writing to adults, I feel like I'm having to to deprogram some some of that some of those ways of thinking about writing, you know, what I'm going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's really not that different even out uh, on the internet, right? I, I had well, never made yeah. the connection before, right? The clickbait and the platform building. I mean, it's a, it's a different, you know, different set of rules and uh, different level, but it's, you know, it's, it's not that different there either. So it's, so easy to fall into the trap of writing for oneself uh, mm-hmm. or writing for self-promotion as opposed to writing as a gift to the world. Yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to switch gears a little bit cuz I want to talk about in in um uh, your your recent book on reading well. Um it's a book about virtue. Um and about how how we grow in virtue if if we read well. And I'm especially interested in in the idea that you um, are working through of virtue and and uh, telos or you know our our end um, a, a purpose that we didn't invent for ourselves um, mm. 
And you, I, I, I'm not sure if you uh, were quoting somebody else or if this was you. Um, you were talking about the idea that that the emotivism that has replaced virtue um, appropriates the language of morality, and and so becomes sort of an eviscerated version of virtue. That that reading can give us back a truer sense of virtue, wherein we get in touch with what's actually real and true and good and beautiful in the world. I hope that's a fair summation of, of yeah. your ideas. Yeah, the, the, the first part of that, the idea of emotivism replacing true virtue comes from Alistair McIntyre's oh, right. After yeah. Virtue. Right, and, but then the rest of it, the whole project of my book is, right, is to talk about how reading is a tool in helping us to find our way back to real virtue. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd like to to check in with you about is the idea that it's not the writer's job to create meaning, invent meaning, to even the fiction writer's real job isn't to create an alternate reality, but rather to point us to realities that the um, that the writer didn't invent. As Jamie Smith says, any attempt to create our own reality is, is not only doomed to fail, it's doomed to exacerbate human suffering. And as I was reading your book, you're talking about fictional works that exist in a in an imaginary world, so to speak, and mm-hmm. and yet their their point is to align us with re, you know realities that the author didn't invent. That, that's exactly right. This is, I mean, this the idea of um, of literature or art being an invitation, of course, goes all the way back to the to the ancients mm-hmm. um, and that is what its purpose is um, of course that imitation can be you know it can be applied very broadly I mean even a, a work of fantasy is you know is still imitating reality sure. and, and it, if it doesn't do that well then um, then yeah, that, it's not going <laughs> to resonate with us but um, and it's and, and literature and art, is not a sermon. So that's, and that's something that confuses a lot of Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it reflects reality by imitating reality. And in real life, you know, people don't go around, you know, with placards saying, I'm a loser. I'm, I, you know, I'm, yeah. go- I'm going to cheat, cheat on you. I'm going to break your heart or I'm a good person. I mean, that's just not how life works. And so, so the best literature just simply sort of recreates our experience by leaving room for interpretation. And there is meaning there, just as there is in real life, but good artists don't have to set that meaning up or plant it in there or hide it. They just use the craft of words to recreate the kind of meaning that is embedded in, you know, in real life yeah. around us. Yeah. Um, Splinter Connors you know, says the the well. She, this is a paraphrase, not a quote. But the eye is an organ of judgment, and that mm. our that our our the sensing part of our brain and the judging part of our brains aren't really aren't as far apart as we tend to think they are. And so, mm. in fiction, the the author presents experience to us, and hopefully, in the way that it comes to us in real life, and and sets our judging apparatus to work, which is why fiction is so so effective as a, as a way of preparing us for, for life. Yes, exactly. And that's why, you know, and that's why there are different kinds of literary experiences that do that and others that, 
do something else, which isn't yeah. necessarily bad. Right. But, you know, a beach read or a romance, you know, that's more like watching a television show. And again, that's not that's not bad. But the craft of literature and, and literary fiction and poetry are all doing something different. Um, and that's what I think also confuses a lot of people. Are there ways that that specific stories have um, changed the way you look at the world? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the answer to that is yes. Hmm. Can, can you? <laughs> sure. Oh, where to begin? Well, I usually, my, my go-to is um, probably Jane Eyre. I mean, Jane Eyre was just one of those early works that of great literature that, that grabbed me. Um, going back to our earlier part of our conversation, probably, probably the most, the most distinct feature of that novel is the voice of the narrator. Um, it's a strong, coherent, um, compelling voice. Um, and it's a great, it, a lot of people don't realize that it's actually, you know, it's not just a romance. I mean, there are romantic elements in it, but it is really the, the story of a Christian soul finding her way home, uh-huh. finding her, you know, who she is. Yeah. Um, and then in, in utter contrast to that, <laughs> um, you know, if virtue is moderating between the extremes, I, you know, I, I, I've got that going on because I just love Jane Austen. And, and again, another, a lot, something that a lot of people don't get about Austen is, is she's anti-romantic. She's satirical. Uh-huh. Um, and so there are lots of voices actually in her novels because she slips in and out of different perspectives of right. the characters she's satirizing or identifying with. And it's a very, it's a, it's, you really have to pay attention when you're reading Austen. Um, you don't, you just get lost in the story because she's constantly demanding us to figure out whose perspective uh, is, is relaying this information. And are we supposed to trust it or are we supposed to reject it? Um, so that, that kind of writing has definitely had a formative um role in the way that I think and write and perceive the world with a little bit of cynicism and satire, um, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in Austin you have this, um, it's, it, the, the, it seems to me the right kind of ironic distance from the world. Like, the, the Christian position is, is one of ironic distance. If, again, the, yes. right, the right kind of ironic distance—the one that says, yes. hey, "I'm not going to take this world as seriously as the world insists that right. I take it." Right, and that's it's that's being an in the world posture. but not of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that it's a very Christian approach. Yes, we 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 know and understand and experience the world enough that we get it. You know, Austin clearly gets her world and the people in it. Yet she's a, a little bit outside of it, kind of looking at how it can be corrected and what can be, you know, what vices and follies need to be, um, you know, to be corrected and grappled with. And yet she still loves, you can tell she loves her characters and loves yeah. her world. And she's like, yeah. Yeah. I love the observation you made about, about the, the changing perspectives um, and our, uh, the, the reader's, um, I don't want to say responsibility. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we have responsibility, but, but, but it's a responsibility we we gladly accept of passing judgment on these voices. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, is every time anybody says anything to us, we're we're assessing: are they trustworthy? Are they? Do they know what they're talking about? You're, you're always assessing. And exactly. Austin makes us makes us do that. 
And that's why her work is such a great example of what literature, what good literature really does. It it recreates reality and allows us to have this experience that we, and sharpens our, our, our skills in what we need to do, as you said, all day long with everyone around us is to assess what they're saying, judge what they're saying, but also to try to understand them and empathize with them too. Right. Even our enemies. Yeah. That's what Austin helps us practice doing. Can you give me a specific example of how Austin helps us be kind to our enemies? Yeah, let's see. Um, so, um, I'm, uh, rereading and writing about sense and sensibility right mm-hmm. now. And, um, you know, it turns out, you know, it is, as is typical with Austin that the, the first sort of dashing romantic male hero turns out to be a villain. Yeah. Right. Um, of course, you know, but then later in the story, and this is actually her, her the, the film version with Emma Thompson is, is excellent, but it's still very different from the novel in many ways. And so one of the things that the novel does that's not in the film, I, I don't believe, is a scene where the villain, Willoughby, comes back and gives an explanation for his bad behavior. Now, it's not, it doesn't pardon him. It's not an excuse, but it does change the way we, we kind of understand and feel a little bit sorry for him. Again, it doesn't excuse him, um, but... It, it complicates his character and allows us to see that there's something behind that villainy. There's a person mm-hmm. who's confused and struggling and sorry. Uh-huh. It's very powerful. you have any thoughts on the uh, complexity of, of uh, villain stories in current stories and movies? And Right. You know, that's, that's a great um, question. I think it's, it's, there's probably a nuance there because there's also a tendency in in stories and films today for us to be manipulated into cheering for the villain right. and, and identifying over much with him, which mm-hmm. is obviously not good, but right. this kind of finer line where we can empathize and understand yet still not excuse and still not, um, you know, embrace the, the evil that, that I think I, I, I prefer realism over romanticism and so i think that is a good dose of realism because that is you know we are surrounded uh by people on the internet or hopefully in our real lives who didn't vote the way we vote (laughs) and we don't understand why they did what they did or why they're doing what they're doing and they could be very very wrong but that doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of a a rationale a reason as misguided as it might be um, you know, most people are not as evil as they come across on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> not even, not even you, Karen. <laughs> not even me. I've read, I've read some things about you on the internet, and uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you, Karen, and and I, and, uh, and I I do appreciate your your voice of of reason even on Twitter. Um. And I'm sorry for the for the uh, punishment that you have undergone as a result. <laughs> well, thank um, you. All right, I I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw this quotation out out here. We're about to run out of time, but I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. This is something Christian Wyman um, said in a piece about the poet Richard Wilbur, and and Richard okay. Wilbur's um, apparent mental health. Um, uh, a poet who feeds on pathologies eventually becomes their food. 
But the issue is larger than that. A culture, too, is a work of imagination or a failure of it. We are meant to be in a golden age of the television drama, and perhaps we are, but just consider how thoroughly so many of these shows equate misery with authenticity and how many rely on violence and degradation, Mm -hmm. usually toward women, to establish character and intensity. Um, I didn't mean to get off on television. I I admit that out. But anyway, of course we need art to explore the darkest recesses of our lives and minds, but we also need art to tell us why this world is worth loving and therefore saving. Praise, too, is part of any whole artistic and existential vision. Joy is one kind of courage. Um, Wow. Isn't that great? And I, that is really great. And and the 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 part that I that I had meant to to focus on before I forgot to cut out the part about television dramas is the idea that a cult, a culture is a work of imagination or a failure of imagination, and mm-hmm. and that in in our in our the culture we're in now, joy is very much a kind of courage. Hmm. Um. And so. Anyway, again, that's, I know that's not a question. The question is, what do you think about that quote, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the worst interview question ever? Yeah. No, no. I mean, this again. This is this is the most important point, I think. And and yes, of the whole conversation, I'll point to this: is that is the role of the imagination in creating. It's not, imagination is not about escaping, you know, and into flights of yeah. fancy and and then returning. To, but but the but imagination literally is the image or impression that we have of what is around us and 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 that we carry with us based on what we have seen. And all of that has to do with with attention. Um, there's something earlier yes. in the in the conversation where where I thought to bring up this point of of attention. Um, because, oh, this is because we were talking about writers who are reflecting the world around us, but they're being selective, right? Because they're paying attention to certain things more than Mm. other things, which is what we also, we also do, you know, when we're walking down the street or driving in our cars or, or, or walking across, you know, across walk in Nashville and getting hit by a bus or whatever, (laughs) (laughs) um, um, you know, we can't pay attention to everything, yet we can train our attention to to focus on negative things or positive things, and and we have to we can't we don't want to be in denial, but yet that yeah it, it is a work of imagination to choose joy, um, and that yeah. is a courageous act today. Yeah, yeah. I love that quote. Um, yeah, there's the question of you know. Not just what's true, but what's truer and what's truest, right? There are lots of things that yes. are true in the world, yes. but, but some things are a little truer than yes. others. Um, yes. All right, Karen, last question. Uh, who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh, it, our, it's, a, it's easy. Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. <laughs> correct. Um, correct she, answer. Yeah, she just, uh, you know... Um, she sees the world and reflects it and pays attention to it in a way that I want to do. Even even if I'm not writing that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I want to pay attention to the world in the way that she does. And I want to reflect that. Um, yeah, yeah, she's probably number one on my list. 
Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and again, Jane Austen. You know, again, mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't be writing about you know Regency England, but it, her ability to do the things that we talked about before—to kind of be in the world but not of it, to yeah. love her world but critique it—that's um, what I want to do as well with my writing. Yeah. Well, Karen, from from your writing, I can tell that's true that you that you love the Aww. world and you want to critique it. And so, thank you for your voice in this culture, and. Uh, uh, may your tribe increase. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope we can talk again soon. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song Finch in the Pantry as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com/donate.